Hey, welcome. We are celebrating Christmas, the coming of Christ, God physically coming to our big blue marble and rescuing us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas during this Advent season, and we are combining that with our series of messages we've been doing in the book of Exodus, bringing those two things together, Exodus and Christmas Advent might seem like this Herculean task, but it actually fits together really, really well. The Bible, if you're aware, tells one story, and it's the story of God's rescue through Jesus, and it comes up over and over again through the pages of Scripture. In this story, God's revealing his identity, who he is. He's revealing it to Moses in the book of Exodus. He's revealing it to Israel. He's telling him about his character, and he's communicating who he is through their rescue to the entire world. In fact, throughout this whole Exodus event that we've been studying, Israel is being invited into a completely different kind of new identity. They're becoming a people who are connected to God and bear his name to the whole world. It's a whole identity thing that they're being transferred into. In, in the book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, Dr. Carmen Imes highlights that there is a quest for identity for every single one of us and need to find ourselves, find out who we are, what we're supposed to do with our lives. And she says it's all in Exodus. The whole thing is right there. And then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus becomes our identity. Jesus becomes, in the same way that Yahweh becomes Israel identity, we bear the name of Christ. When you become a follower of Jesus, you take on the name Christian. And that's not like a political thing. That's like a little Christ thing. I'm becoming like Jesus. And so we just want to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about some of the ways that that becomes true. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in a letter to a local church. He writes this, Colossians 3. Since then, as followers of Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <laughs> I love it. He's saying that as a follower of the resurrected Christ, because you've been saved, because you've been redeemed through your faith in Christ, your identity is now indelibly connected to God. That's exactly what's going on in Exodus. That's exactly what we see there. So if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 19 is what we're going to be looking at. Lots of Bibles in the rack at the chair there in front of you. Exodus 19, we're at a point in the story that's now three months past them miraculously leaving Egypt. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they've been rescued and cared for and provided for by Yahweh. Chapter 19, let me pray. I'm going to start reading a little bit in verse 1. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you put your power on this time together? And would you power my feeble little sermon? <laughs> would you empower that to actually speak your heart to our lives? And we just say we thank you. You are such a faithful, faithful father. We thank you and we welcome you here. In Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Exodus 19, verse 1. Here's how it reads. On the first day... 
of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. I just want to kind of camp out on verses four, five, and six for just a minute here, because this is key to like this whole section that we're going to look at today. Israel has been rescued, and in so they've been given a whole different kind of status. Look with me at verse four. You've seen what I have done to Egypt. You've seen what I've done to them because of Pharaoh's mistreatment of you, because of his refusal to acknowledge Yahweh's sovereignty, pretending that he was the sovereign one. You saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you along on eagle's wings. You've experienced my provision and my care. You've experienced water coming out of rocks. You've experienced manna like bread, little honey wafers, appearing like dew in the morning. You've experienced the whole camp covered with quail every single evening so that you had something to eat. You experienced a weekly schedule that involved a day off. You'd never had a day off before. You experienced protection from enemies and you experienced the pillar of fire and cloud guiding you through the wilderness, how I carried you along like on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You're at the mountain where I revealed to Moses before sending him to get you guys. Remember this? Exodus chapter three, God said, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign, Moses, that it's I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God at this mountain. I love that. God says, here's how you're gonna know it was me. When you get all the way back here again with all the people, then you'll know that it was me that did that. Do you ever want God to tell you it was him before you get to the end? before you do anything? Like, God, you gotta show me it's you before I even take a little tiny baby step. God says, nah, I'll prove that it's me when you get all the way there. Hold on to that thought. You're gonna need it. It's really good. I brought you to myself. We talked how Moses had to walk through a ton of painful stuff. He had to trust God in the confrontations with Pharaoh. He had to trust God wandering around the wilderness. He had to trust God if all of Israel was complaining about him. He had to trust God. That trust thing is key. Now look what God says next. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, because of all this, God is saying, because of this rescue, let me show you how relationship with Yahweh actually works. Now that I've rescued you, I'm going to reveal more of myself. And learning obedience is somehow key. So notice, God doesn't ask them to obey before he rescues them. He doesn't say, do all these things and then I'll rescue you. No, 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 no. He swoops down like an eagle protecting its young. And after getting them to safety, he begins to show them what life is meant to look like. 
And what he's going to show them is that faithful obedience is not a way to earn salvation. They've already been rescued. He's going to challenge them now to live a life worthy of that rescue, to live a life worthy of bearing their name, to live a life worthy of their calling. And then he goes like, he says this, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Segula is a Hebrew word, treasured possession. It means personal property selected and saved by Yahweh himself. Do you guys have any like little things at home that you keep your treasured possessions in? I remember as a kid, I had this little wooden box that I got from one of my, gra- oh, I remember which grandma it was, the grandma in Oregon. My uh, grandma in Tangent, Oregon, I found this little wooden box and it had some of her oil paints in it and I asked if I could have the box and she gave it to me. And I kept a few things in that box. There was a little tiny pocket knife that my dad gave me. There was a dried up seahorse. I still have a dried up seahorse. There was like a couple coins that were like solid silver and solid gold. A couple little things like that. Do you guys have any treasured possessions like that? Like, where do you keep them? I hide mine in like at the bottom of a closet. I'm not going to tell you which one. It's my box, not yours. I have a friend who actually buries money in his yard. I bet you want to know what friend that is. (laughs) What do you do with your treasured possessions? God is saying right here to Israel, you are my treasured possession. You were that thing I hold on to like that. That's a pretty cool thing, right? Treasured possession, saved by Yahweh. He says, although the whole earth is mine, although the whole earth is mine. Have you guys ever heard, uh, I think it was back in about 1880, Abraham Kuyper declared as he was opening the Free University of Amsterdam, he declared there is not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Yahweh's saying the same thing. Although it's all mine, I'm the one that made it. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because of this special status, being a treasured possession, now they're going to have a special role, a special vocation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Their vocation is actually going to match their status. Being God's treasured possession means that there's a whole different way to approach life in the world today. They're going to function in priestly ways, mediating between Yahweh and everybody else. They are set apart. They're holy. They're set apart for his service. And look at chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And all the people responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will do it all. You realize that declaration of obedience is a theme throughout the whole scripture as well. That not only does God rescue us, that we are his treasured possession, but our response because of that is we're gonna do it all. And he calls us, God calls us to do it all over and over again. Like there's a couple examples in the uh, early church. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, the apostle Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Because of what God has called you to, because of his rescue in your life, if you're here today or watching online and you're a follower of Jesus, because of his rescue in your life, there's a way to live. That's what Paul is telling the Ephesian church. And it's not just Paul, Peter does the same thing. But you, he says, and he echoes Exodus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, same phrase, God's special possession. You're his treasured possession. That you may declare praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul's intentionally using the language right out of Exodus to remind the church, you and I, that there's a special status, treasured possession, which leads to a whole different way of life, special vocation. Let me just pause there for a minute. How might it change the way we lived? How might it change the way we do marriage? How might it change the way we parent? How might it change the way we shop? How might it change the way we shovel? If we realize that there's a special status that you've been welcomed into, which leads to a whole different way to live life, how might it change the way we interact with all the humans around us, no matter what they look like or what they think, or especially what they say? How might it change the way that we do that? Here's, here's the deal. This is one of the realities. Do you realize at any moment, at any moment, God's power and presence can break into any situation and bring change, bring healthy confrontation, bring healing, bring deliverance? At any moment. There is no moment in your life or my life where God can't break in and do something. There's something really important about being aware in the moment of what God's up to. And it doesn't matter if you're trying to pick out organic carrots or you're trying to fill your car with gasoline or you're exchanging money at a bank or you're shopping online. It doesn't matter. At any moment, God can break in. There's a whole different kind of way of life that we've been lived in, that we've been invited to live into. And in order to stay tuned to that reality, there's a different way to live. So I want to unpack. There's a picture then that we're given uh, following this moment uh, for Israel of a whole different way of life. So this is their moment for a second, okay? Exodus 19. They're invited all together in this covenant relationship with God. And they say yes. And then God visibly manifests his presence and it really freaks them out. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's like earthquake, right? They get totally freaked out. They and Yahweh are being invited into this formal binding covenantal agreement, this relationship with one another. And then Yahweh's going to give them 10 words to live by. We know them as the 10 commandments, but literally in Hebrew, it just means 10 words. They've signed on to be Yahweh's people, and now God's going to show them what that means. They've signed on to be Yahweh's people, but what exactly have they signed on to? 
He hasn't told them everything yet that they're going to have to do. But even before he laid it all out, they said, we're in. Why did they say we're in before they knew the small, the fine print? Have you ever signed something before you read all the fine print? Yes, you have. <laughs> That's what all those agreements are on your phone that you just go, accept, 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 and then you move on, right? They've done the same kind of thing. They signed all the, fine, all the agreements before they read the fine print. Now he goes, now here's 10 words to live by. Here's 10 ways that this is going to work out in your life. And these words, like, man, we've hung them up in courthouses. We've hung them up. There's, there's like displayed down at Canal Park. We think that they're really important. And yet, we've almost never dove into behind them to see what's actually going on there. And so, really quickly, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to unpack all 10 words. You could study these for a really long time. But we don't have time this morning. Well, I, mean, I, I, I have time. You guys probably don't have time to sit here for all of them and in all the ways that we would impact them. But they are amazing, the way that God says, here's a completely different way of life. And honestly, it's totally different than the way our culture operates today. In fact, apart from God, it's totally different than the way that any culture has operated. And we're invited to live that out because we've been rescued. Let me set the context again, a reminder of the context. God spoke all these words and he said this, right at the very beginning, Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What he's saying is these words of expectation are being given by the one who rescued them and entered into this relationship with them. And it doesn't begin with thou shalt not. It begins with I am. God says, I am. I'm the one who rescued you. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. What if these words from God are actually an amazing gift of relationship? What if they're an amazing gift? They're, I, I think that they reveal a dimension of freedom that's made possible by some specific boundaries. Stay within these boundaries, God's saying, and your life will flourish. The God who saved them is now giving them a gift. Looking at them through that lens, the first word is, Pretty simple, worship no other gods, verses three to six. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything under heaven or earth, uh, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of Israel for the sins of the parents from the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Exclusive loyalty to Yahweh means exclusive loyalty to Yahweh. Listen, the reason that he says that the temple doesn't have an image or an idol in it is because God created something in his image. Do you remember what that is, Genesis chapter 2? What did he make in his image? You can say, me! He made you in his image. He doesn't need images because he's got... Millions of them that he created in his image. We're the image of God. Then you don't need those other things. When we show allegiance to anything other than God, we not only rob him of the praise we deserve, he deserves, we diminish ourselves as his images, as the ones that show forth who he is. There's, by the, by the way, side note, theologians have divided up the Ten Commandments. If you look at them, there's, way, there's more than ten 
commandments. There's more than 10 words. So they divided them up differently. I'm dividing them up one way today. You can divide them up however you want. I like mine. Okay, sweet. Second word, don't misrepresent Yahweh, verse seven. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold, uh, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Literally, this means you must not bear or carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold guiltless the one who bears or carries his name in vain. Most translators in English says that doesn't quite make much sense. Names are spoken. They're not lifted. They're not carried. Listen, Israel bears Yahweh's name, thereby represents Yahweh among all the nations. The point of the second commandment is the proper representation of Yahweh by his people. To be a bearer of the name means you're a representative. It says, don't represent me in vain. Don't represent me other than who I am. And those first two commands, they go together. Yahweh can't be represented by a carved image. He's to be represented by the people that he's revealed himself to. He's claimed them as his own. His words, their words and actions are meant to reflect his lordship. And as we'll see later, their failures always come down to those two things. And so the whole rest of these words flow from these first two. That he is God. He's the only one deserving of our allegiance and worship. Our lives are meant to be around him and don't misrepresent him in your words and in your actions. This is a picture of a flourishing life. If we want the kind of life that Jesus invites us into, this is a picture of what it looks like. That our lives are oriented around him and we don't misrepresent him in our life. We're going to get to the New Testament in just a second, but it's the exact same thing that Paul and Peter were saying in those passages I read. And it's the same thing Jesus says over and over again. And then everything else flows from that. The third word, Sabbath. It's learning to rest in God's provision. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath unto the Lord. And what I love about this command is the way that the entire household is protected, ensuring their right to rest, ensuring a, a rhythm of sustainable living. And each Sabbath, each seventh day is this expression of trust in Yahweh, that we can't do this on our own, that there's somebody else that provides everything that we need. Uh, and, and, and he starts them out with a practice of it long before this as they're collecting the manna. Remember if they try to collect it and save it over? that it spoils and it gets really maggoty. He's showing them that life is meant to be resting in him every single step of the way. And his creative work is the model. He creates over six days and then like a king settling on his throne, the seventh day is resting as he continues to rule all of creation. That's what we're invited into every single day. What would it look like to live in this place of rest because, commandment one, he's the center of my life. And commandment two, I'm representing him well. Then I live in this place of rest. The fourth word, honor your father and mother. This is about passing the covenant from generation to generation. Protecting the parents' honor. Listen, they were living in an intergenerational community 
And he's encouraging those who are younger to honor those who are older to actually put the faith that they've been handed into practice. The church is this, meant to be this amazing intergenerational community where people who are older are actually still really honored and respected for their faith in Christ, for the way that they live that life, sometimes really, really well, sometimes not so well. And yet they're honored because that faith is so valuable. One of the things I discovered as I was kind of exploring this kind of life being a pastor, uh, I had no idea when I first began this journey that I have uh, grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents that had all done the same thing. And I discovered along the way a few of their journals that got handed down to me. And the way that a great-grandmother who came to Christ during the Azusa Street, if you're church history buff, then you'll know what that means, um, had actually been praying for her grandchildren uh, before and then very shortly after they were born. And I was the first of the grandchildren born, so I just take all those prayers are for me. And, you know, all my other, what do you call them, cousins. They're all for, but they're all for us like that. I love the way that God does that. Ephesians says, this is the first command with a promise so that you may live long, uh, long and fruitful lives. It's not a promise to ripe old age. He's saying that disregarding your parents' faith is going to have disastrous consequences. And for Israel, it makes them uh, vulnerable to exile and, uh, and even death. So he's saying that's a really important thing. And then the remaining commands are all about a community that's characterized by mutual trust. Let's look at it this way. The fifth word, you shall not murder. It's protecting your neighbor's right to life and to a fair trial in case of dispute. Tempers do not make justice. Revenge has no place in the covenant community. Sixth word, protecting covenant relationship and mutual trust. You shall not commit adultery. Listen, every neighbor has the right to a marriage free from the competition of the other neighbors. For the covenant community to flourish, relationship has to be built on mutual trust. Sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage because marriage is a reflection of our covenant with Yahweh, an exclusive commitment. I am yours and you are mine. The seventh word, protection from my neighbor's greed. You shall not steal. Everyone in the, na in the community has a right to that treasured possession, personal property, free from neighbor's greed. Listen, if I take what's yours, I'm demonstrating a lack of trust in God to provide for me. Eighth word, you shall not give false testimony, protecting your neighbor's reputation. In an age before DNA testing or fingerprinting or video cameras or lie detectors, a person's word was everything. And everybody's reputation depended on the truth. Slander eats through a community like acid. And God says, Don't, that's, that's not the way to represent me. And the ninth and tenth words, the goal is actually character formation. Think about it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, donkey, or anything else. <laughs> I love the way that's worded. Those two commandments not to covet, are completely unenforceable. Like, you can't tell what somebody else is thinking unless they tell you. How do you enforce those commandments? The key is you don't, right? Who can prove that you're craving their house? Well, my neighbor's house is really, really nice. 
So I do walk by it sometimes and I'm jealous. But I'm in, in mine and I like what's in mine. My stereo's in mine. It's nice. Listen, the nature of these two commands hit at the purpose, at the function of all the law. It's not about legislation. It's about character formation. It's a picture and an invitation into a different way of life that we're being formed in the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through our obedience to God. Let me sum this up. Being connected to Yahweh, being a people who bear his name to the nations or to your neighbors, is a completely different way to live life on our planet. And it's for those whom Yahweh has rescued. They're invited into this life. And it affects every single part of life. To go back to Dr. Imes, the Old Testament laws related to virtually every facet of Israel's life, business, agriculture, cooking, diet, dress, worship, governance, relationships, health, even their calendar. Because being God's covenant people meant being transformed in all these areas. What would it look like to have Christ bring transformation to you in every area? That's what these words represent. Every area. When you invite somebody over to do plumbing because your house needs plumbing fixed, what would it look like to treat them as people of the covenant community, even when they fail in their job, especially when they fail in their job. What would it look like to treat them like that? Because treating them good when they succeed in their job and your plumbing works, that's easy. Any idiot can do that. I could even do that. But treating them when you've hired them to bake a cake and the cake falls apart? That's a lot harder. What does it look like to do that? What does it look like to allow God to transform you in everything? Being part of a covenant community, being part of a church. Every part of our life is worship. Every part of our life is expressing our loyalty to God who's committed himself to us. John was highlighting last week how we treat others reveals our hearts towards God, especially those who are on the outside looking in especially those who are not in positions of power and authority. How we treat everybody reveals our hearts towards God. So going back to the New Testament, remember the quote from Ephesians. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now look at what he says next. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Why do you need to be told to bear with one another? Because one another is sometimes really annoying, right? Just think about it this way. You are somebody else's annoying person. I remind myself of that every day. Good morning, Michael. You're somebody else's annoying person. It's true about you too, not just me. Make every effort. That's going to hurt. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Listen, we can't do that in and of ourselves unless empowered by the Holy Spirit, unless we constantly orient our lives around God. We put him right at the center. 
Peter says the same thing. Remember, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We like that part. Yes, I'm God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look how he continues. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, not as the owners, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. To live such good lives among those who don't follow God, the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's work for us to do in this. Just like there was work for Israel to be faithful to what God had invited them into. Imagine being part of a community that actually could live that way, where every member lives and works to protect their neighbor, no matter who their neighbor is or how much you disagree with them or what kind of signs are in their yard. Imagine that kind of community. We get so messed up about it. These words, these commandments... It was never about earning God's favor, never about earning salvation. The Israelites were saved the same way we are, by grace, through faith. But then God called them to express their allegiance to Yahweh, a community aligned around him, worshiping him, putting him first, seeking righteousness, as Jesus said it. That kind of community is, 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 is in a position to experience all the benefits of relationship with God. And that's the only kind of a community that can love one another. It's the only kind of a community that can love their enemies. That's the only kind of a community that can do that. And that's my hope for us. That's where the church is supposed to be. So Michael, what does this have to do with Christmas? I'm so glad you asked. John chapter one, starting in verse nine. It reads like this, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. That's what I love about Christmas lights. Every time I see Christmas, I go, the true light has come into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yet to all who did receive him, to those that believe in his name. Listen, you and I are welcomed into this new identity. We're welcomed into the special status of God's being God's treasured possession. We're welcomed into that because of Christ at Christmas. You're welcome through receiving and believing in Christ. To receive something is to, uh, to take it in, to, to put it to use, to welcome it into your life, right? Uh, we take in food that way. I welcome food into my life. It's good for me. It's to welcome Christ into my life. To believe is to stake my life on it. When you're sick, you put medicine in your body because you think it will do you good. You don't put bleach in your body because that's not going to do you any good. You put medicine in your body, right? And when you do that, that's believing in it. I believe this, right? And it helps me to receive that. And then you're invited to take on this whole new role, this whole new vocation as one who's set apart for God, one who is bringing his presence 
and power, his kingdom, to use New Testament word, to all of our friends and neighbors. So God rescued Israel, taught them how to live. God offers us the same rescue, that same kind of salvation as we reorient our life around him. Whew, that's the fastest I've ever taught through the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Was it helpful at all? That was about like 25 of you said, yes, that's good. So here's what we're gonna do. For the rest of you that didn't find any help in that yet, and for those that did, we're gonna have ministry time. And ministry time here at the Vineyard is where we then stop listening to me ramble on and on, and we begin to try to tune into what the Holy Spirit's doing. And so why don't you guys all stand up, and I'm gonna pray, and then we're just gonna have some little bit of silence, and we're gonna wait on God and ask God to, and we're gonna have romantic lighting apparently too, and then we're gonna ask God to just kind of move in our midst and speak to us individually. And so I'm gonna just invite you to kind of get comfortable in your posture. One of the things I like to do is I like to hold my hands out because it's a, you don't have to do this, but it's, a, it's like I'm trying to express the posture that I want my heart to have, my mind to have, where I'm open to God, bringing his presence and his gifts in my life. This is meant to be an interactive relationship with the living God, the resurrected Christ, the Holy Spirit. And then I'm just gonna pray and I'm gonna wait and we're gonna see what God wants to do in us as a community and then we're gonna respond to him and get some prayer. And so Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here right now. I know you're always here, but tangibly, would you allow us to experience you? We're a little afraid as the Israelites were of the earthquakes and the thunder and the lightning like when you really show up. And so thank you for the way that you are generally really gentle with us and incredibly compassionate towards us as the humans you made. Like a potter is with the clay. Would you allow us to experience you? Would you speak to us? For those of us, if you're here or watching online, and you have never actually just submitted, surrendered your life to Christ, I just invite you right now to do that. Even just this simple act of saying, Lord, I invite you into my life. That's an act of submission. It's an act of surrender. Sometimes, especially kind of when there's room, like I actually just get on my knees and I bow down. But my physical body, if you're watching online, that'll be easier for you to do than in this room. But I let my physical body express what's really going on, what I'm really feeling. So, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that even, as Paul writes in Romans, when I was an enemy of you, when I didn't want anything you had to offer, you laid down your life for me. And you invite me to be a treasured possession. You might be here and you're like, I don't even know what that means. To which I'd say, I know, I'm still learning myself but just enter into that. God, I want to be your treasured possession. I want to experience your rescue. I don't even know all the things that are coming against me the way Egypt came against the Israelites. I don't even understand them all. I can't even sort them all out. But God, I want your rescue. And so, 
I submit and surrender my life to you. If you're doing that for the first time, God bless you. It is so good to submit and surrender and allow God then to begin to move and shape. The scriptures say that when we do that, we put our faith in Christ as death on the cross, that God fills us with his Holy Spirit. Something comes alive in us, awaken us for the first time. Lord, would you allow those of us who are submitting, surrendering to you to experience that right now? And Lord, would you change us? And then for those of us that maybe even that submission, surrender, that initial season was a long time ago, there's still areas in our lives, just like the Israelites for the whole Old Testament, where we're not really aligned with you. There's areas in our lives where we're holding back, we're doing it on our own, we're saying, thanks God, I can take it from here instead of living in that place of surrender moment by moment. And Lord, we just repent of that. We just say, no, we don't want to live that way. God, would you give us a faith, a gift of faith to receive and to believe? Would you lay on us as we surrender that whole, uh, that whole blanket of being your treasured possession. I've never used one, but I just pictured it like a weighted blanket. Like this comfort of being God's special possession, treasured, being adopted into his family, being a son or daughter, as we read about in the New Testament. And Lord, would you highlight of these 10 words things in our lives that don't line up are not oriented towards you. And would you give us a grace to turn to you and to repent? Would you give us a hope and a confidence that as we turn to you, that you actually meet us in that. And I don't know which one of those ones stands out for you, but I know, I know that at least one or two do. I think God wants to really meet you in that, if you'll turn to him. So if you're on the ministry team, why don't you make your way to the front? And if one of those things is being highlighted to you, would you just come up to the front as well? Nobody will know, like if you're coming up to the front for prayer or to give prayer, just come on up here. Or you can sneak up right now, nobody will know. And allow folks to begin to pray with you and minister to you in a way that, like it's so powerful when we as the body of Christ take time to pray for one another. Come on up here and begin to receive that. God bless you guys. Holy Spirit, would you give us courage even in this moment to respond? If you're in the middle of a row and people are in the way, just excuse yourself. Or if they don't move, just push them down like you're playing hockey. We'll pray for them later. We believe in physical healing. God can do that. I'm joking, kind of. Holy Spirit, 
Let your presence be here with us. Worship team's gonna lead us in some worship over the next little bit. Come on up and get some prayer. Allow God to move. And if you're surrendering your life to Jesus for the first time, or maybe you just wanna make a really formal recommitment, we have a gift that we'd like to give you. There's a little envelope by the back door, and the, all the folks up here can grab you one as well. It's just about beginning life with God. Come up and grab one of those. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today, and have a great rest of your Sunday.